Welcome to Stream Shakespeare's second podcast based on our roundtable number two, The Tempest, Hagseed and Shakespeare Adaptations, which was recorded via video conference on the 22nd of July 2020 in Sydney, Australia. Stream Shakespeare is an online theatre and arts production company founded in Sydney during the COVID-19 pandemic to provide opportunities to performing arts professionals who've been suffering from a loss of work due to the current crisis. champion and artistic director of Stream Shakespeare and welcome to our roundtable number two, The Tempest, Hagseed and Shakespeare Adaptations, featuring the wonderful director of our recent stage reading production of The Tempest, Alex Perrett. Yeah, and we've got Jeff Semai, who was playing Gonzalo in the same production, and Camille Tovey, who is uh, our wonderful Canadian uh, writer and copywriter and um, editor and marketer who's been helping us out so much with our shows and performing in some of them as well. on the Tempest and Hagseed, but we're going to have a bit of a conversation um, and see where it takes us about other uh, aspects of Shakespeare and stories and characters and plot lines that have been adapted into various different media and um, different interpretations. So um, the first question I had, I guess, for you today is how do you think the characters in The Tempest correspond to the characters that Margaret Atwood has created in Hagseed? I think that, I mean, it's fairly obvious that Felix is Prospero, um, but some of the other ones are not quite as obvious. I think um, uh, Sal O'Nally and Tony are Alonso, or as in your production, Alex Alonza. We made Alonza. And Antonio is pretty straight. It's just Tony. I think Lonnie might be Gonzalo. Yep. That's your character in The Tempest, right? Yes, yes. Uh, interesting. You know, the, the, the helper, the procurer, the kind of, um, uh, yes, I, I thought it was sort of like a kind of production manager in the, in the, in the prison theatre, but, but um, just helping the good guys, <laughs> mainly. He's a little bit weak, though, isn't he, Gonzalo and Lonnie? Yeah, they're both a bit wet, even, almost. Yeah. Well, um, literally, as in your case at the moment. And at the beginning of the show, we've, we've got the backgrounds here from the beginning of the show, the, the actual Tempest. Mm. And um, Gonzalo uh, famously now appears in our showreel 
<laughs> a a I could say dry die, a dry a, death. A dry death, yes, yes. No. The wheels above be done. I would fain die a dry death. Indeed. <laughs> so yes, a little wet, but I come by it uh, honestly. Yeah, I think that one was... of the things I sort of appreciated about the characters was the character of Felix's daughter, Miranda, who sort of started out as the Miranda character, but then sort of morphs, at least to the point where I'm at, morphs into Ariel um, and yes. starts taking on that role as well. And I think that's that's kind of an interesting sort of interpretation of both the characters about where they could go. Mm. Yeah, especially especially as a as a imaginary friend slash, you know, um, psychosis kind of thing where it's, you know, he's lost his daughter um, and no one else can see this character, which always kind of feeds back into the um, debate as whether anyone else can see Ariel in The Tempest. That's true, yeah. But there is a point in Hagseed where um, Miranda <laughs> goes... People start to... People start to sense that she's there yeah. or something's there. Mm. Yeah, really interesting because it takes it out of the psychological realm and starts suggesting that maybe she really is a ghost. Mm. Well, at one point, Eight Hands hears her, and because mm. she's she's his backup, right? So he hears her mouthing the lines with him, and yeah. it distracts him, <clears throat> which is it sort of you know reinforces the whole idea of whether or not you know is Ariel real? Is Miranda real? Are they able to influence? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Ariel has a lot of influence, but is Miranda able to influence what's going and on voices. in the production as well? Yeah, and voices. It's interesting because sometimes it's just audio, if you like, because they are they are fed fed voices. But you know, hearing voices in terms of delusion, in terms of madness, in terms of drug-induced psychosis, um, and magic. Um, all throughout in the supernatural and where they interplay and it's playing with our reality and it's playing with their reality and the same interpretation is there in Hagsid as it is in the Shakespeare which is it is what you make of it. Mm. And this this shift between the illusion, psychology and reality and the, the interactions between those mm. I think are very interesting. And uh, obviously Eight Hands is kind of aerial as well as Miranda because Eight Hands is stage managing and doing all the technical wizardry. It's also Eight Hands's team is aerial. Yeah. It's not just Eight Hands and Miranda, it's also his team. I think that Felix recognizes that Ariel isn't just a single spiritual entity. It's Ariel has the goblins, Ariel has the, you know, the other spirits, the the even the goddesses are all a part of the spirits of the island. And so I guess having that um Having that be the the case where lots of different people can be Ariel in that sense or Ariel, and the theatrical mechanics of it as well too, yeah. because we've got not just not just the 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 supernatural or the magical, but there's also the aspects to which there is there is stage stage business and stage um, machinery, the production aspects going on mm. in the in the prison, um, which are making these effects, which are doing people's heads in, of course, in that final performance, mm. um, but which also um, have their effect on the on the participants, on the actors. Mm. And that's that's Ariel's role, isn't it? It's just mm. to like to be the either the shepherd pushing people along or like to mess with people. If it's like, but it's also transforming into different things. It's like now it's this spirit. Now it's a like a mermaid or siren kind of 
nymph character then it's the harpy and it's like uh, or the goblins or or um from what i understand ariel's also supposed to play the role of Ceres, you know and, uh, initially in shakespeare's so it says that while i was presenting Ceres, so it's like ariel's constantly transforming into lots of different things for different purposes and different roles you know hmm. i think it's very interesting in the in the uh, book in hagseed he there's a sort of whole section on about what is ariel is ariel a fairy and a spirit, an alien, uh, a stage manager, a special effects magician. Is is Ariel male or female? Um, and in Hagseed, of course, the, the Fletcher correctional players don't really want to play Ariel as a fairy or as female, so they decide to make Ariel kind of more alien. <laughs> and we have got the background of Ariel playing. Her <laughs> Hello, Emily. I just, just one of my multi talent, multi talented actor musicians. Wasn't she um, awesome? Yeah. Yeah. Somewhat transparently. Yeah. <laughs> so you decided to to cast Ariel or Ariel as as a female. I think when casting it to start with, because like almost poignantly, Tempest is a show with one female character. Like initially, you've got Miranda, and then a lot of other but uh, characters like or actor. There's one female actor. There are other female characters like Sycorax and like, you know, the mother, um, either the mother, like the mother mentioned once by Prospero, Errol's mother. And then the only other women, woman would be Prospero's mother that Miranda mentions and saying, you know, had born bad sons. Yeah. Like that's the only time women are even mentioned. But they don't, they don't appear on, the, on stage. Yeah. But then, but they don't even appear. So it's just Miranda and, and it's, it's actually kind of, uh, it's it's uncomfortable. It's actually uncomfortable now to look at that because of how Miranda is viewed by the other performers, or by the other characters. You've got Caliban who tries to, um, you know, have his way with her prior to scene starting, and that's why he's kept in the cell. Um, and he's like, "Yeah, I would have done it." And it's like, "Well, oh, you know, um, the way that the way that Prospero uses her almost as like a bargaining shit with." with trying to get his dukedom back by manoeuvring her towards Ferdinand. And that's, that's like his plan is to use his daughter for that. And then Caliban uses Miranda to suggest that Stefano should marry her and have lots of children. Like it's, it's really kind of uncomfortable when you look at the way that the single female character in the play is, is treated or viewed by every other character, which is amazing how, um, how the character Anne Marie kind of flips that into this incredibly powerful, mm. strong, like Amazon fighter kind of character that she she flips it and goes, no, she's been through all of this and now she's incredibly strong and and will not be used or abused. Um, but in terms of casting Tempest, I was like, it, I I felt uncomfortable, especially with the stream Shakespeare. How many talented female performers? there are to kind of go, let's just have one female um, character and then uh, a lot of male characters. So with Ariel's probably the easiest one to kind of go, definitely can be played by a woman. Um, yeah, very, very easily. And, and it doesn't require any edits or anything like that to make it go, this is a female character. And I suppose um, what um, Margaret Atwood did was she made Ariel 
male and female. It's both <laughs> Eight Hands and it's Miranda the Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she was playing with that as well. But there and other characters like Caliban is basically, I think, Legs, the 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 prison inmate who plays Caliban in the Fletcher Correctional Players version. Mm. So you, Alex, you decided to make Caliban um, very kind of subhuman, or, or yeah, there's a lot of brother. yeah, my brother, yeah. Um, so there's lots of there's lots of writing in the last however many hundreds of years about Caliban and about um, colonization and mm. and the role like th that that Caliban is this this representation of the displaced native um, or the enslaved native because he is Prospero's slave. And so much of what Caliban says is like, this is my island. You came here. You tried to teach me your ways. You've taught me how to read and write. And all I know now how to do is to use what you've taught me to curse you. You know, um, that's all you've given me. It's like that same idea that, you know, uh, you look at Australia or America, whatever, it's like, we've brought these, we Europeans have brought these wonderful things for you. You can read and write. You have our religion. You have our alcohol or whatever it is. You know, that's a big part as well is that Stefano and Tricchio are like, here, we've come, native person, drink, have have some alcohol, you know, and they, they make him into a, you know, a drunken mess like them, you know. Um, so Caliban is this, this, or is often viewed as this uh, representation of the native um, for mine, though, like that's once again, that's a. He's also, as far as I can see, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings, um, and there's so much that shows that Gollum is based on Caliban. There's mm -hmm. so much yeah. in his, in his dialogue, his song, like his song, his little um, "No more dams I'll make for fish." It almost feels like it's the song that Gollum sings, you know. Yeah. Um, and so. <laughs> There's heaps of it. There's heaps of it. The way that he's hurt. Gollum is this this character who's like disfigured and he's in pain and he's cursed and all of these things. Uh, he's wandering around like being pinched. And if you watch the, the Peter Jackson films, he's constantly being beat up by everyone taller than him. And he has a, a sad ending. Caliban also has a sad ending. You know, he's this, everyone kind of has a happy ending almost except for Caliban. Um, and then... I don't know, I just, I just felt like that was a nice kind of comparison characterization-wise to kind of go, let's make him a Gollum-style character. You can sympathise with him. I think I think you do sympathise with, with the Caliban in our show, even though he looks like, you know, something very different, um, the same way that, you know, but it would justify the reason they can beat up Gollum is because he looks different. He doesn't look like the rest of them. They're like, oh, he's not human. We can beat him up. Um, and it's, which is in terms of, um, indigenous people, I'm sure it's probably how, you know, with Australia, Terra Nullius show up and go like, you're not the same as us. You're you're different to us. We can do things to you. Um, yeah. Without yeah, specific... I sort of... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I sort of see Caliban not so much as a, as a, a parallel to Aboriginal and ind Indigenous peoples, but actually more of, of a force of nature, mm. um, you know, more in and of the island as opposed to, you know, someone who just lives on it. Yeah. Um, and, and getting back to what you were saying about Caliban's, you know, not quite so satisfactory ending, I think it, it talks about how some things can't be restored. You know, no matter, no matter how you try, you know, some things just don't get better. It might get better for some people, but 
Um, you know, in some cases it just doesn't get better. And I, I, that's sort of the feeling I had with Caliban. Yeah. You know, everybody, some people get their happy endings, but some people don't. There's an interesting aspect here where the, where the kind of utopian slash, you know, um, desert island paradise um, theme comes into all of this too, mm. uh, in the sense that there's a lovely speech that Gonzalo has about how yeah. he would make a he would make a you know, a paradise of this world, uh, no, you know, another golden no age mm. to rival yeah to rival the golden age, and uh, and of course they poke fun at him, but you know he's noticing that that in fact everything is there you know to make a, a heaven of this place. He's seeing mm. the positives of it as opposed to the colonial types, yeah. the uh, the baddies of the scene, if you like, exactly. who um, are looking at what they can exploit rather than what they could enjoy, mm. and presumably do it. Um, you know, in Gonzalo's view, in a in a in a uh, uh, environmentally you know, sustainable way. I mean, mm. literally, that's how I I see him looking at it. Yeah. And it's a nice thing because because it's interesting that in the end, everyone leaves. Everyone pretty much leaves. Mm. Presume that Caliban doesn't. Um, but it's kind of like they've been in this uh, in this world. I'm going to say mm. brave new world, and drop in drop in that little reference of Miranda's. Mm. Which, which then has all all uh, all twentieth century uh, implications mm. as well too, because we get this sense of, let's call it, utopian or anti-utopian yeah. literature um, uh, history as well, um, uh, um, not the settlement, the uh, the island anyway. Where, you know, John Savage, if you like, the savage world, which is the natural world as opposed to the the exploited um, imposed world, yeah. and all the problems that come with it. There's all this, there's all these things coming on there. It's in the Shakespeare, and of course, it's there again um, in uh, in Hagseed, quite apart from the other more obvious uh, prison mm. metaphor, which is just very, very, very strongly throughout. Which is yeah. interesting with the um, the character of uh, what was. Uh, what is the character's name? Um, who is the uh, Red Coyote? Who's the yeah? You know, yeah, he's the First cause, Nations person. Yeah, because you know it, the play is based in Canada. You know, so it's like yeah, he's he's his commentary throughout is so like important there because it's like mm. well, even he's like surely I should play Caliban. You know, mm-hmm. I can I can probably most you know connect to this character more than anyone else. Yeah, it's interesting. But eventually Felix decides to go with the really kind of scary, rough, big, muscular um, Afghanistan vet um, who's got PTSD, I think, um, legs for the role of Caliban rather than Red Purdy. Mm. Um, But I think Red Purdy is still very much on Caliban's kind of team. And, um, of course, we have this wonderful presentation at the end of Hagseed where they all talk about the the futures of their characters and... Mm. Legs presents on behalf of Tim Caliban that um, he he sees this wonderful kind of rock star future for Caliban with his amazing musical talent um, as a as a kind of proto rapper. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, Camille, if you could possibly talk about how the setting of Hagseed is very Canadian. Oh yes, Canadian. That's it. Um, okay, so I, I'm I'm going to mispronounce it. I'm I'm going to look it up in the book because I'm going to mispronounce it. It is Mekish Mekishnawak Mekshiweg Mekshiweg. Um, that is standing in for Stratford, the Stratford Festival, which is in southern Ontario, sort of in the Kitchener Waterloo um, 
area of southern Ontario, and it's a very small town. Um, not much goes on there beyond the theater, um, and and that literally that that little city, that little town, lives for its theater. Um, it's it's very picturesque. It's very there are a lot of like Victorian style um, houses throughout. There's a river, the River Naben, obviously that goes through by the uh, by the two theater buildings. Um, it was founded. I can't remember when exactly it was founded, but it was founded by loyalists who came up from the U.S. post uh, War of Independence and settled in there so it's it's very very british like it feels very very british it's, it's you know having lived in in northern ontario which is actually very french canadian more so than, than southern ontario um you you have a very distinct feeling of britishness in there and, and and colonial sense to it um and and it's it's you know very much as described you know you sort of have the downtown core with the theaters and all the, the lovely little pubs and restaurants and everything that supports it. And then as you move out, it sort of starts feeling, um, you know, very suburban, a little grimy, a little grungy. And then as you move further out, you're getting into farmland, you're getting into, into you know, less um, affluent sort of areas of, of the city. Is that so it's, it's, it's very close. Styles himself too, the, the outskirts, the, the rural sort of outskirts of the town. Sorry, can you say that again? Sorry. Nick Felix exiles himself to the sort of rural outfit. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there are a lot of um, Mennonites who live in that area as well. So there's a lot of like very large farm area where there's not a lot of, you know, there might be one house that has electricity in case of an emergency, um, but the rest don't. Um, and, and they're, you know, very utilitarian, very, but they're very big because they have very large families to support their farming activities as well. So, yeah, this is, you know, not that surprising. But if he were to go just a little bit further, he'd be into wine country. So then he'd be, you know, living a really good life in, in the wine reads because it's not that far. And there is a Mennonite character in Hagseed as well. And I, yes. I, that's the first time I'd come across um, kind of like Amish. Yes, very similar. Um, German extraction. Um, they're they're interesting. They're 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 very interesting in that they put a lot of thought into what technology they accept and what technology they they don't. Um, you know, Amish tend to just reject modern conveniences and everything, but Mennonites tend to think about it a little bit more. At least in my experience, um, I went to school with some New Order Mennonite and some Old Order Mennonite. Um, for example, most of them ride in buggies, horse and carriages, but they will have one car that the community can use in case there's an emergency and they need to get somebody to the hospital fast. So maybe three or four people will have their driver's license and there's this one car that can service the community, um, you know, if, if something happens. Uh, I remember staying in a bed and breakfast once um, and I was talking with the uh, innkeeper and she said she was talking about having um a tornado to go through and tearing down some barns. And she said, you know, the Mennonites are great to have as neighbors because if you ever need anything done, they're right there to help you, but they don't waste time. And as a matter of fact, they came through, rebuilt the barns before the um, insurance adjusters could come and check the dam. <laughs> 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 you know, they're just, oh yeah, we'll take care of it. Get it built within a day. And there's this really strong sense in Hagseed that it's winter for most of the, the play. Yeah. Sorry, the book's setting. 
Um, and I don't think as Australians here, we really understand what a Canadian winter is like at all. <laughs> and that's an easy winter. Like Southern Ontario is an easy winter. Having I, live, I lived in, in the northern end of, of Ontario and I mean, we had snow in July. Um, <laughs> but by, by April, it's, and, and it's interesting that the book ends at the end of March because that's just when spring is starting to to come up in Southern Ontario in that region. Um, you know, you're, it's, it's really starting to get hold and the snow is melting and you're starting to get the greenery and everything. So it's, it's, it's an interesting little bit. It's like, you know, the weather, it's, it's an interesting little rebirth that sort of corresponds to what's happening with the book. Winter of Adi's content made glorious summer. Yeah. Glorious spring at least. And that's, that's, that's that's a, that's a theme that Shakespeare returns to a lot. I mean, I, I directed The Winter's Tale um, a couple of months ago for a stream Shakespeare, which is now up on our YouTube channel um, for you to watch as well. And that very much deals with this, this theme of, of the tragedy happening in wintertime and then spring being this rebirth. You hope um, the young people, as in Hagseed, the young people of Anne-Marie Anne Greenland and Freddie O'Nally coming in um, and taking over from Felix, who's deciding to step back a little bit. Um, as the new director of re being reinstated in his position as the director of the Mechsheweg slash Stratford Festival. Um, so this, this sense of, of renewal and hope. Yeah. I thought um, you might actually also want to talk briefly about how the Stratford Festival is parodied in a, or referenced it in another wonderful show that um, talks about Shakespeare a lot, which is um, Slings and Arrows. The sort of, it's kind of become a cult kits um it was quite a, it was quite a successful tv show when it, it was yeah it, it won a few awards uh, what's really fun is that it's shot and shaped in in stratford really it is, it is in fact shot in stratford yeah because i remember reading an interview with the, the creators of slings and arrows which I, I just love and um one of the creators was saying it's not stratford i used to work at stratford this is not about stratford and the other <laughs> like it's stratford <laughs> I, I i think you cannot Honestly, in terms of theatre experience in Canada, you can't get away from Stratford. We have two very big um, theatre festivals. There's there's the Stratford Festival, and then there is, in Niagara-on-the-Lake, it is the Brittany Shaw Festival, which um, does Bernard Shaw and various other places as well. So those are the two big ones. And they are maybe an hour's drive from each other. Like Niagara-on-the-Lake is literally on, on the lake. Um, and then there's Stratford and they're within you know, driving distance of each other, maybe an hour. Um, so I don't think you can have a show about theater in Canada without referencing one of these two places. Um, you just can't. Um, I just, I really liked how um, Hagseed seemed to actually kind of draw from Slings and Arrows because it had a, it has a character who um, is mentioned at the very beginning and, and in the backstory, but then dies. And that is the character of Miranda, Felix's daughter, who has died 12 years before the main action of the, the plot. And she's a, a ghost in his, as we were saying before, and, the, and she just torments or, or keeps company that one one person, Felix, her father, mm -hmm. and in Slings and Arrows, of course, one of the main plot points is that the original artistic director, who's a bit getting on a bit, 
dies in the very first episode and then he haunts the replacement artistic director for the rest of the, the show for three seasons. Uh, and no one else, they, they play, they're playing constantly with this idea, can, is he really a ghost or is he just a figment of the new artistic director's imagination? Exactly what we see in Hagsey. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely very similar. You you see a lot of, of Oliver is the name of the ghost in, in Slings and Arrows. Um, you see, I see a lot of Oliver in Miranda, sort of, you know, kind of quietly, not as annoyingly, but encouraging Felix to do what needs to be done, as opposed to you know um, Oliver getting his show and trying to get his vision of his shows on through the acting. Um, artistic director so there there's definitely a parallel but they, they're very different in terms of how they act out to get what they want but for me um having started from shakespeare this year it was just so so rewarding to read this novel and watch slings and arrows and and say that's that's it that's exactly what <laughs> running the shakespeare company is like <laughs> Well, I've seen a lot of, of, of similarities between characters on Slings and Arrows and, and our cast and crew. <laughs> Let's not go there. I could get myself in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Alex, um, I wanted to ask you if you felt like you were kind of like eight hands or you identified more with Felix or with Prospero or with Ariel. Ariel. I, I uh, definitely Felix. Like um, as I was reading it, because I was – as I was directing the show, or prior to directing the show, as, as I was designing the show, I was um, I was listening to Hag Seed on audiobook so that I could do a lot of the visual editing kind of stuff. And yeah, it was it was a it was an experience. It was a very immersive experience in terms of Tempest to be doing that at the same time. Um, but just I don't know because I was also going through. I actually found this one quite difficult to cast um, for me. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what it was, but I had a lot less. I had a lot less men put up their hands for for Tempest than I than I had um, expected, and so I actually had to hunt down a few people. Um, like uh, uh, James, who played Ferdinand, was um, an old friend of mine from uh, acting school, and so and he's. I think he's he's a brilliant actor. I was like, yeah, you're a perfect Ferdinand. Please, 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 please be in my show. Um, and um, yeah, and we had a couple of people pull out as well, and so. And then having to like hunt down other people to go, can you please do this? And then bringing my brother in to play Caliban, um, you know, and stuff like that. So it was going through those things similar to as I'm listening to Felix going through his di- different, you know, things. But then also as I'm sitting there designing the, the visuals, I'm also thinking about as he's talking about Ariel as the special effects. You know, I'm looking at my, you know, visual effects software and going, oh, this is my Ariel and you know, whatever, you know. Um, and uh, but also, um, yeah, like I, I began to find parallels in lots of things that I was doing with what Felix was experiencing um, in other ways as well. Yeah, I definitely experienced that. It's very weird. It was a very surreal experience, actually. Well, you're, yeah. you're dealing very much with technology um, and pushing mm-hmm. the boundaries of new technology in this new genre that we've kind of created with um, with Stream Shakespeare, or at mm-hmm. least we're maybe not created, but certainly I think we're at the cutting edge of what this genre of video conference theatre can do. Yeah. And you really pushed that envelope with The Tempest, with your production. I mean, it was incredible, the, the, the special effects on the music and... Yeah, by my other brother. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a, yeah, it was like a, 
it definitely felt like in the same way that Felix does, he talks about Ariel as being the special effects, Ariel as being the technology and the magic and things like that. And I guess, which is one of the reasons I wanted to put on Tempest is because I, I, you know, I, I got involved with Stream Shakespeare back when I think Romeo and Juliet was the first one I did. And I was like, this is really interesting for an actor. Um, but then I also was thinking like for an audience, theater, theater is a lot more than just watching actors. You kind of need the spectacle for theater to be really, really theatrical. You know, it's not just the plot and the, the actors, it's, it's the visual entities, the, I don't know, the stagecraft, all that mm. kind of stuff, you know? And so um, what I, I think I was watching, I'm not sure which production I was watching, but I, I was just sitting to myself, I was like, I, I really want to do one, but I want to make it like big. I want to make it really big. And I, I, I was, I was going to go, I was actually going to propose Midsummer's. I was going to propose Midsummer Night's Dream. And then I looked, I looked at your, your backlog and you'd already done it. I was like, oh, what, what haven't they done? What haven't they done? I was like, oh, yeah. Cause I was like, oh, I, um, cause we, we watched the, um, we watched the, uh, uh, the incredible online. Oh, I can't remember where the production was, where they flipped Titania and, um, and Oberon. Um, anyway, we watched that and that was kind of in a, very much in a Midsummer's mindset of the magic i wanted to show magic you mm. know? um but then because this is what we're doing technology is, yeah. is, is magic it's modern totally. absolutely and i was like there's there's got to be one that i can do that shows that and um i actually performed in a production of tempest a couple of years ago and so it was um yeah um definitely one of my favorite texts back then and then my brother uh just uh, my brother liam who composed the music um, was also, he's a, he's a, uh, he was designing a video game based on the expanded universe of Shakespeare. Oh, wow. He created uh, this story in this video game design around forgotten characters. Like, um, and I won't go into too much detail because it's his, his, his concept, but, um, uh, mixing, mixing worlds of Shakespeare. And it's a really, really cool idea. And he's already, you know, he, He'd um, done all this work for it. And so he was like, he, part of it was the backstory to Tempest. He's like, I really want someone to tell the prequel to Tempest. Um, the, the story of how Prospero got betrayed, of, of Sycorax, the witch, of, of you know, um, the son she bore from the demon Setebos and things like that. You know, this, this incredible backstory, which is just talked about in Tempest. I was like, this is a really cool story to tell um he, he says that no one tells it and he wanted to kind of explore it in this game and he's like you should do tempest and then like find a way to to tell the backstory and so like even going into it that was like a important point for me to kind of to get and i wasn't sure how to do it yet but like um what you, what uh, you did was fabulous in the intermission that was that oh, was um, the intermission is a wonderful example of that people yeah, should okay. know that the intermission in the tempest yeah. did the backstory in music and and visuals and um and text. Pulling, pulling the text pulling the text from prospero's mm. own explanation to miranda yeah. Uh, yeah. It was absolutely beautiful no one's sitting around getting a cup of coffee we're watching spellbound and this <laughs> Yeah, we're getting filled in again in case we missed any of that because now mm. it's in front of us. It was quite. Again, and it's such a it's such a cool story too. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's it, a, it did generate quite the reaction amongst the audience to see yeah. that because it was it was very 
you know, visual, but also very easy for people to understand and sort of come in halfway through. It's like, oh, okay, so that's what they're talking about. Just, just to give even more context, yeah. all of the text edit stuff and that that piece of footage was finished at one o'clock on Sunday. Um, and so the call time, 1 p.m. 1 p.m. on Sunday when the actors arrive ready for their call to perform it. So that, that was all finalized just then. We were an hour beforehand putting music to it. An hour before that, I was putting all the text together for the, the disappearing letters and stuff and finding the right words to use and where to put them and all that kind of makes a difference. I felt like, you know, like when you introduce my favorite part is where it introduces um, Sycorax, which is my mother. My mother plays the role of Sycorax, you know. I've got my whole family involved in some extent. Okay? I put the horned helmet on her and she's yeah. making different poses. Um, Dynasty of Milan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then she, you know, uh, it says, um, it just goes, hast thou forgot the foul witch Sycorax? And something like just placement of things like that. Because you do, you do forget Sycorax. Yeah. She's this important yeah. character and you're learning all about Prospero's backstory and then he just goes, Sycorax. Here is a very important character. She's like the villain that's not even there, you know, like, um, uh, but yeah, um, we had different ideas of how we wanted to tell that backstory. We wanted to originally use like a tapestry effect where we showed just different, different parts of a tapestry and then zoom out and show the whole thing as like a full tapestry. Oh. Um, but, and I wanted to do it in the style of um, this, this thing. Um, so when I designed the poster, I was like, oh, we could tell it like this with silhouettes. But it was even cooler to be able to put the actual actors we were using and go, yeah. this is them in, in yeah. this world, you know, um, showing Jeff on the boat, holding his book as he's just sent off Charlie to be, you know, on, on his little leaky dinghy, um, you know, and uh, the, little, the little young Miranda is uh, one of my best friends, her daughter, who was watching the show and she goes, I'm on TV. Um, yeah, she's, she's a little, yeah, she's adorable. Um, wearing her uh, Princess Anna outfit um, from Frozen. Yeah. So you, were, um, you were animating. You were actually making animated uh, characters from the from the real actors. Uh, doesn't yeah, explain yeah. to anybody who didn't, yeah. who hasn't, hasn't caught it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're placing, we're placing, yeah. And like similar, similar shots because something that I really wanted to, and I only, I, I didn't know how to do half of the stuff I did until I tried to do it. I just taught myself to do it with like YouTube and stuff like that. It's really That's amazing right. stuff. Thank you. You are a project manager's nightmare. <laughs> That's why I didn't, I didn't, I just got my family involved. It was a family affair because I could ask them to do stuff and yeah. Um, but yeah, being able to put a, cause it wasn't just like we're doing now green screening people and saying, this is now their background. Um, if you look at that shot of Jeff, he's actually on the boat. He's not just green screen. No. Jeff is actually standing on the ship. And so the camera can move around through the ropes and you can see Jim up at the helm. You know, they're, 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 their likeness is physically standing in a 3D space, which I really want to explore a bit more of because I only did it a couple of times um, in introduction shots where um, Miranda's running towards the cell to get Prospero to stop the storm and you've got Eleni running and then Charlie standing there and turning and stuff like that. Being able to put actors in a 3D space, especially in a virtual yeah. world we're living in, it gives yeah. it this extra extra level of uh, photo realness that I don't think people had, I hadn't seen before. I, hadn't, I didn't even know how to do it until I tried it. I accident, I think my favorite accidentally dropped, dropped into my hands how to pull it off. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much better than I thought I could do. Yeah. 
Well, I think my favorite shot was like from the introduction with Jeff standing on the boat and you see the rain coming down yeah. and it's like it's rolling down the, the lens of the camera. Mm. And that was just that's doing that right now with my, my background here. Yeah, it's happening yeah, to like that's just boggles my mind. It's, it looks yeah. amazing. I kind of like this moment. I like this moment where you've flown one of the characters into yeah. shot. Oh, yeah, yeah, the wings, the fabulous wings. They were great. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, the doing the goddess one was the one I wanted like it's and and they talk about it in in um in hag seed about it's something that never really works in any production of tempest no he, he talks about he said no one ever pulls it off no one can pull it off we're going to use barbie dolls to try and do a, a version of it but everyone either usually underplays it and makes it I was actually just reading a review for um a production done by the Lord Chamberlain's men um the performing company in um in england that were performing tempest in wales and the reviewer said that they had a small cast and they were all men and the men were playing women and so it turned it into a bit of a farce because you've got men putting on high voices you got the actor playing stefano playing iris and stuff like that you know it doesn't it doesn't communicate and what's interesting is that prospero describes it he says this is ferdinand says this is beautiful this is are these spirits like this is gorgeous and then prospero is like yes and he describes it in this beautiful detail and it's basically shakespeare's stage directions that mm. it needs to be beautiful it needs to have this effect the singing the um and so the cool thing about this medium is especially with the pre-recorded stuff and the music you can actually almost give it justice that no stage production would be able to you know having having hannah fly over the ocean with golden wings you know and stuff like that it's not something you can pull off on stage um convincingly but in video land um you can pull off some really interesting stuff and those designs are all based on on um like the costumes and stuff it's all quite accurate to what those goddesses are described as having you know like iris the golden winged uh, messenger from, you know, goddess of rainbows coming out of a rainbow, you know, Ceres, goddess of the harvest coming through the the grass and, you know, Juno, queen of the goddesses coming down in this, you know, this kind of, yeah, there you go. Um, but, you know, the peacocks and those different design things, which are really cool to put into this. Um, and which is cool for Holly, Holly, Hannah and, um, and Rhiannon is That's that they can actually fun. go home and watch it and not actually have to be performing in the show. And we go, oh, there's me. I'm, I'm singing listen how amazing I sound um yeah. but then because it's pre-recorded you know um yeah. well I mean I, I meant I um was was wonderful for me as artistic director because I could actually be in the show and see all the wonderful um interpolated videos that you had and imagery and music that you had laid over the zoom mm. in OBS and watch the whole show as an audience member and be mm. able to comment on it rather than um, our viewers might not be aware, but the actors actually don't get to see these videos till after, yeah. till, till afterwards, or even realise exactly what <laughs> you are using the fill of them for, because yeah. you completely worked out what I it's know. Going to be. Well, especially for animate them and put them yeah. on a boat for the two of um, you in the processes. I'm like, I for Holly, she put the laptop behind her camera. Her, her phone was on a tripod, and then her laptop was behind it. And I'm on Zoom directing, looking through the viewfinder on the camera and directing <laughs> her quite, in front of her green screen. <laughs> like it was quite a strange meta yeah. filmic experience. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, actually, for people who, you know, who ask how we do this uh, to get a sense of uh, the setup. I mean, 
forget the uh, the, the uh, incredible stuff that you're doing um, uh, with editing and with special effects, but even just for each individual actor to to, to set up the background, uh, mm. to work out the green screen aspects of it, to work out the digital aspects of it. Um, you know, I've been showing friends and 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 colleagues how I set up with a combination of a ladder, a table that's on wheels. <laughs> to go forwards and backwards, how much is natural light, how much is, you know, is artificial light that's on the green screen, um, mm. uh, what can and what can't be in shot, and to check that. Um, uh, I, honestly, after reading Hagseed, I feel like I, as artistic director, should be able to issue you all with certificates saying, as they do in the Flexure Correctional yeah. Project, <laughs> yes. now uh, experienced in green screen, experienced yeah, yeah. in uh, lighting, <laughs> experienced in all these different that. technical effects. Mm. Well, what a wonderful thing to be able to challenge performers and and, and the other creatives involved yeah. to to go beyond their the usual um, safe space. Can I, can I throw a couple of things in? I want to uh, uh, the references. Okay, there's amazing references throughout literature and throughout culture to um in of a lot of Shakespeare, and we, we mentioned a couple of them already. And and uh, whenever you say Sycorax, I think of an episode or a couple of episodes of Doctor Who. Because uh, yes. you get you get these things dropped in all over the place, um, and of course, Brave New World and and, and Miranda, and these things. Um, I, I want to throw in the term um, intertextuality because mm. something interesting that comes up when you when you kind of read around this in, a, in an academic way, not to not to take it away from the magical world, which is really about performing it, mm. but just the question of how reading one changes your interpretation or your your understanding mm. of the other mm. because they they start to intercept i mean you know, in our conversation already we are we are melding we are we are throwing back and forth um the new insights that one centuries later throws yeah. upon the other and interestingly in retrospect of course um, mm. sorry in reverse of course how how is that for you know for for you guys um for yeah. me, it was very. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I actually hadn't read <clears throat> hadn't hadn't read The Tempest or seen a production of it before I read Hagseed. Oh wow! So well, I, I, that's I, interesting in itself. I actually came to The Tempest through Hagseed, so my my whole understanding of it initially was mediated through Hagseed. When Hagseed. did you re- When did you read Hagseed first? When was that? Uh, just a, about a month ago. Oh, okay. Hmm. So I, I didn't actually know The Tempest well at all. I'd, I'd seen little segments of it here and there, and I'd read. Mm-hmm sort of a general plot outline and discussion of some of the characters, but I mm. hadn't read the play, hadn't seen it. Yeah, my, my only exposure with it was, yeah, I played Sebastian in a, in a local uh, theatre company's version um, three or four years ago, and then I kind of forgot about it. Yeah. yeah. I came to The Tempest, I saw it with Christopher Plummer at, at uh, Stratford Festival, which was amazing. <laughs> um, you know, he... It was a masterclass, you know, it was just absolutely masterful watching him take and sort of manipulate and and customize the role very much to him. It was it was really interesting to watch. And I'd come to it um, the other way around from from a literary point of view, from from an academic background uh, in my studies of Shakespeare and postgraduate and 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 um, and connecting. Um, all of that through other literature, and we've mentioned other other formats and other genres, and and uh, and, and things like the uh, the Aldous Huxley, and um, and connect, and and even even pop culture, because of course it's inspired all sorts of other things. I think I mentioned um, to all you guys at some point in the rehearsal process, Beach Blanket Tempest, which I'd seen mm. at Sydney Uni, mm. one of the classic Lamont Cranston over the top kind of 
Annette Funicello-style musicals, hilarious. I, I'm still keen to yeah. producing that. We've got to find some of that for you. Because <laughs> that's just bizarre. But um, all these things are playing off each other. Mm. And, and, the, and the, the discovery of, always of the poetry of, of Shakespeare in itself is so wonderful when it comes to life in, in the mouths of actors and with the vision of a director mm. and any other forces of theatre. Mm. But, 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 but when it connects with other things um, and draws in themes that are, that are relatable as well too. I, I was very drawn to the, to the, to the prison uh, metaphor Mm. Um, yeah, and we use that so effectively hugely in, in Hagseed. Yeah, mm. um, and Camille had the wonderful idea of using that in our marketing campaign. Do you want to talk about that? How you did that, Camille? Oh, um, yeah. No, it just this was Jim's idea. Jim Sofo played oh. the the Botswain. Sorry, what's the proper term? Bosun. Sorry, <laughs> don't do navy. Um, but uh, who played the bosun? He. Uh, he teasingly tossed out a reference to Les Mis in 24601 in terms of prisoner numbers. And from there, I sort of went, you know, what if, what if we did like a, a prisoner profile or prisoner cards or identification cards for people? And that's how I built that. And then everybody had a number on their card. And for those of you who were, you know, investigative enough to go digging into this number, they were actually... Um, numbers referencing celebrity arrests. <laughs> so, um, Jeff, mugshot, I believe, mugshot, yeah. yeah, mugshots specifically, yeah. like arrest mugshot numbers. Yeah. So, Jeff, you were you were Frank Sinatra. I was. I just love the story of how Paul's father looked at it, and then he looked at the number and goes. What was Paul's? It was um Paul's was Bowie when Bowie, Bowie was at, arrested. His, his father for, looked at it for possession. Goes, yeah, Bowie. Yeah. His father looked at it, looked at the number, goes, "That's Bowie's mugshot number." Yeah, exactly. Like, Just somehow he, he knew. Somehow he knew the number. Like yeah, Bowie, yeah. I, I I had mentioned that there, there was a Bowie reference, and. Um, Paul just went, I have no clue. I, I'm looking at it, I have no clue. And his father walked by and he said to his dad, hey, dad, can you find the Bowie reference? And he's like, yeah, that's his arrest number. Wow. I was, I was shocked. I think it, it was just really the idea and the way you executed it because it really, and it's very, very um, relevant to Hagseed, of course, because um, one of Hagseed's main um, propositions is that everyone in the Tempest and in the Hagseed meta Tempest, if you like, um, is in prison in some way, imprisoned by their own psychology, as in Felix's, Felix's shame and self-pity imprisons him. Um, and Miranda is imprisoned by being dead. So her spirit is, is a figment of his psychology. And all these, these different prisons within the play, I mean, the goddesses are illusions, so they're kind of imprisoned within the illusion of the goddess Mark. Um, and... Um, you know, Prospero obviously is imprisoned on the island. Miranda's imprisoned by Prospero. Um, and everyone's constrained. Uh, and then there's this, this sort of longing for freedom and longing for a brave new world that we can expand into and explore. So um, I, I just love that you did that, Camilla. That was great. It was very Thank funny. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting that you, you seem to feel that death is what's holding Miranda back in, in Hagseed. I think it's her dad. I think her dad is the one holding her there, not so much, you know, the state that she is, is yeah. no longer 
amongst the living. Because he sets her free at the very end. Exactly. Um, Especially if she's the Ariel character, um, then mm -hmm. Ariel, it's the same thing. Ariel is a, a tool for Prospero, but also a prisoner that he will let go once he's finished doing what he's doing. So in the same way, it's like, you're released now. Um, and and I think that's at would playing with people's expectations. Like people expect Miranda to be Miranda. Mm. And, but to have her sort of flow into the role of Ariel, I think that was that was rather clever on her part. Yeah. You wouldn't want it to be too too cut and dry, like, oh, this I'm playing, this is Felix, I'm playing Prospero. Yeah, this is I'm Miranda playing that. Miranda, you know, you don't want yeah. it to be too you gotta tease yeah. and play with people. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. And those and those different levels of abstraction, like you were saying, Jeff. It's like you don't want to just go, this is because they reference, they are living Tempest referencing Tempest. You know, they're, they're talking about the Tempest and they're experiencing it. And somehow that is, they don't, he never goes, he never really says, this is weird. This is playing out so I much know, like the Tempest. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 He, never, he, never, he never acknowledges that even though he makes reference to sometimes, he says, like when he goes out to the country, he's living with that family. He goes, um, perhaps she is the Sycorax. But then he actually goes, well, no, because, and then he takes reasons why these people don't fit perfectly into mm. the roles. He goes, perhaps in his own mind, he's like, perhaps you then represent this character within the Tempest, but then no for these reasons, you know. Yeah, so it's like she, she almost does. does. Hmm. Go ahead, That's an interesting psychology in itself, which is that kind of, um, um, uh, that, that you, you can become, you can almost make things happen by becoming absorbed in the world of it. Hmm. So, in a sense, there's a there's a sort of inevitability about uh, about Felix um, uh, living out the the, the kind yeah. of obsession and the fantasy at the moment that he is self aware to some extent, but also having control and also having the things that he can't control. Uh, and yet, there's a the temptation to see how far into that um, that parallel world um, whatever resources he has. Um, can take him and can take mm. the others. And so there's an indulgence aspect in it as well as the revenge aspect, of course, which is very much Prospero's um, uh, initial initial um, uh, yeah. motivation. But there's also the kind of, I wonder where this will take us because he's also, um, you know, on a journey, you know, that he can't control them entirely. Mm. I love how at the end of Hagsfeed, as well as setting Miranda slash Ariel free from his from his the prison of his mind um and he also goes on a boat journey uh, he goes on a cruise <laughs> and he brings he brings his real world ariel eight hands with him to to try and set him free into the world as well now he's been released on early parole and he also brings this other character of estelle who's this wonderful kind of kind of love interest character for for felix who we, we couldn't work out what her her correlation was i think it was maybe the bosun well i think i think we're saying could be gonzalo because that the link between estelle being the supporter yeah of, of everything that felix does yeah. the friend and the supporter and the provider and yeah. the one who understands and yeah and the facilitator to a certain degree as well like she sort of facilitates everything so happening the action of the book so Gonzalo is actually two characters in the Hag Seed. It's it's um, um, Lonnie. Lonnie, 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 as well as Estelle. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And there's a buddy and, aspect in 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 the yeah. in, you know, in the Tempest as well. There is aspect to it. And it's slightly different status. Yeah, but it's the it's it's that but that's that's key because it's the the 
tears of Gonzalo that make Prospero change his mind about revenge. It's like yeah. he's he's inflicting pain on these people. One of them is someone he deeply cares about. And then Ariel's like, uh, you would cry. He's like, you think so? Well, I would if I were human. Like it's that's a beautiful moment. And it's so it's so touching because it just goes, what am I doing? Why do I want revenge? I don't anymore. I forgive them. You know? Yeah, and, and she Margaret Atwood really looks into that in, in the character of Felix in Hagsey. He's like, hmm. uh, he got his revenge such as it was. His enemies had suffered, which had been a pleasure. Uh, then Felix had strewn forgiveness around while listening to the clenching of Tony's teeth, which had been a greater pleasure. Um, but then he kind of has this feeling of kind of emptiness after the, the whole thing has happened, the climax of the novel and the, and the climax of um, his, his production of The Tempest has happened and now he's got to move on to that next stage of allowing people to be free, allowing Anne-Marie and Freddie to take over much of his role as artistic director, allowing himself to be free of this hole he's been living in. Mm. And, and like Prospero, he's kind of, at the end of the, the novel, I think you get this sense of breaking the fourth wall almost with Margaret Atwood giving you the, um, the insight into The Tempest as a piece. The original story, yes. The original story, and, mm. and just in the, as, in, as Prospero does in The Tempest, where he breaks the fourth wall, he talks directly yeah. to, to camera, as in our production, yeah. and, and asks the audience to set, set me free. Set me free. Mm. Yes, free. And I, yeah, there's no answer to it. I love that she pin that she pinpoints that like it's left up to the audience, and so it doesn't go. And then Prospero is free. It's like, please set me free. Yeah. The end. And, 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 and there's also that meta theatrical level, which is simple epilogue Shakespeare, whether it's Puck, or or whether it's another epilogue character, um, uh, um, requesting of the audience. Yeah, like in As You Like It. To let us finish, out we go. Thank you very much. Give me your hands if we be friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, that kind of freedom as well is to, is, to, is to end here because this is the end of the story. Yeah. For tonight. And, oh, I was just saying, I think we need to bring this to a close because we're getting to the end of our oh. hour as well. <laughs> no, well, give me your hands if we be friends. It's yeah. <laughs> a good place to finish it. Yeah, please, please give your hands for these wonderful people, Alex Perrett, uh, Jeff Samai and Camille Toby, um, and myself, Holly Champion. I hope you've enjoyed today's roundtable. We'll be having another one fairly soon on The Merchant of Venice, another one on race and performance, and hopefully one on gender and women in, in Shakespeare. So. You have been listening to a streamed Shakespeare podcast titled The Tempest, Hagseed and Shakespeare Adaptations. This was originally recorded via video conference on the 22nd of July 2020 in Sydney, Australia. This podcast featured myself, Holly Champion, as Artistic Director of Stream Shakespeare, in conversation with director Alex Perrett, performer and arts publicist Jeff Semai, and performer and arts marketer Camille Toby. This podcast was produced and directed by myself with The Tempest Music by Liam Perrett and our roundtable theme music Lo-Fi by Josh Yankin and Dylan Cartwright. Marketing and social media was by Kiara Osborne, technical direction by Charlotte Wiltshire, and sound by Thomas G. Burt. For more information, or to see some of our innovative online staged readings of Shakespeare's plays, or simply to support our work during the COVID-19 performing arts crisis, 
please visit our website, www.streamshakespeare.com.